Good morning. It's a pleasure once again to be with all of you. Uh, I, I just remember fondly all my visits down here for Sunday mornings. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's really great for me. If you uh, ever get a chance to uh, hit the central campus, you know, for those of us who have been here long term, that uh, typically when you're up in the pulpit, you preach three times in a morning. It used to be way back in the day, we would preach a couple times on Saturday and a couple times on Sunday. So how refreshing is it to come here and preach, you know, get here at 10.15 and man, what, what, what an awesome experience. I, I just look forward to it so often. It's also cool to see the way that you guys grow and develop as a congregation over time. Uh, Doug told us today that we're looking at the power of prayer. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Um, prayer is a very common theme for this time of year for churches. Uh, as we look at the new year, people are kind of excited about what that may look like, what God's going to do, and all of those things. And prayer uh, is the place to begin, the place to start. I've had a great time over the last couple of weeks thinking through what the power of prayer may be. And I have chosen as one of my scriptures this morning is uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles with you or if you're on your phones or whatever mode you're using, you're welcome to follow along. Uh, I, I first became acquainted with the power of prayer when I was a young Christian, uh, back to the 1970s. And I just graduated from high school and my mom suggested that I get a job at uh, Northwestern Bell, where she worked in Omaha. She had been there for 30-plus years. And I thought this sounded like a great part-time job to have while I went to college. Uh, I was hoping to go into the ministry. And so I started uh, working that very first summer after I graduated. In fact, I graduated on a Friday night, and Monday morning, there I was at work at the phone company. Now, I'm very grateful for the fact that I got in on the ground floor of the computers uh, back in those days. Big old mainframe filled the entire room with a computer, which was probably less powerful than the one that you have on your phone right now at this time. But it was still a cutting edge in that day. And so uh, I took to it right off. I seemed to have an aptitude for computers, and pretty soon the phone company had me working at different phone centers all over Omaha. Now, if you're too old or young to remember, phone centers was back when they first began selling phones. Uh, not like the ones we have in our pockets, but just regular desktop phones or wall-mounted phones. So you would have to go to a phone store and pick a phone out. Well, to do that, of course, they had to enter data on a computer, and uh, that was my job, is to help with the computer data get on the computer, to train people to use computers, and so forth. Uh, after a little while, I found myself being uh, taxied from different phone center to different phone center to different phone center, enjoying probably one of the most su successful uh, times of my life. The phone company then began to pay me better and better, and within a couple of years, uh, I was living a pretty good life, going to college, uh, working at the phone company, and so forth. Well, at the end of my sophomore year in college, my boss's boss, the district manager of uh, the city of Omaha for the Northwestern Bell, 
took me out for lunch and said, Dave, uh, we've made a decision. We really want to eliminate all of our part-time staff. Now, we really like you, and we want you to continue doing your job, but we want you to do it full-time. And I asked him, are you saying that you want me to quit college? And there's a lot of people that would say, hey, that's a great option. You know, what was I going to do with a college degree that business couldn't do for me, and so forth. And um, I knew in my heart I was preparing for ministry, so I didn't know if that was going to be a great option. So we talked a little bit more, and uh, it, it really discouraged me. But a couple weeks later, I heard of a new job where I could work with my pastor of my church. And uh, that's not like a pretty cool thing. I would be the church secretary and also learn how to do ministry from him. I would be the assistant to the pastor. Not the assistant pastor, just the assistant to the pastor. And so I'm talking to my then girlfriend, who's sitting right over here today as my wife, and I was kind of down, and I was saying to her, I, I just can't believe this. You know, God was blessing me so much with this job. It was so exciting, and now I'm going to be forced to quit it and uh, go work in our church and expecting to get all this empathy. And I was new to this boyfriend-girlfriend thing, so I didn't know what to expect, but I expected some tears, some sorrow, something along those lines, it's any kind of empathy whatsoever. But instead, there's this big smile on her face. And I'm like, what, 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 is, what is that, Ion? What are you doing? And she goes, this is such an answer to prayer. I said, an answer to prayer that I lose my job? What are you thinking? And she goes, well, Dave, I've been concerned for you. I know you said that you felt God's calling in your life to go into ministry. But here you are earning this great salary. You're, you're thinking about maybe business as a way of life. And I was afraid for you. And I really wanted you to go into a job where you could learn ministry and get a feel for if this is you or not. So I prayed that you would lose your job. <laughs> there is power in prayer. I didn't know what quite to do with that statement at the time. Uh, we stayed dating. Uh, <clears throat> but one thing I learned right then is that there is and I mean this with all seriousness, power in prayer, but there's also certain people that have that power of prayer. My entire life, you know, we dated for all those years, we've been married. If I have something I really need prayer on, there's one person I go to, and that's my wife. She doesn't like me to say these things because it's embarrassing to her, but I'm telling you, when this woman prays, things happen. Um, not always the way I see it, but the way that God probably sees it, right? There's power in prayer. Prayer is a strange thing. Uh, besides it being just a conversation between us and God, prayer is one of those things that sometimes Christians get very discouraged about. I, I've run into several people who claim to be a follower of Christ, but now at this point, they're kind of walking away from God. And when I ask them why, why, why are you giving up on your faith? I've gotten this answer. Well, I prayed. I've heard sermons on prayer. I've uh, tried praying. I've tried to be consistent at it. But God doesn't seem to answer my prayers. I'm still sick. I still need money. Uh, I lost my job. Uh, my child has turned away from his faith. And I've prayed. I've prayed earnestly. And there's nothing. 
Prayer can be one of those things that actually turns on us and turns us away from the very God that we should be turning on to. I first learned to pray, I think, in an effective way when as a young man, uh, my wife and I, who were dating at the time, decided to go to our church's Wednesday night prayer meetings. Now, if you were raised in the old style churches, most churches had a midweek prayer meeting, of which almost no one went to, right? Except people who had way too much time on their hands. Well, my wife and I decided, you know, no one else in the youth group was going to the Wednesday night prayer meeting, so we decided to go. And the pastor uh, would lead us in a Bible study, very short, designed to just get us kind of worked up into a spirit of prayer. And then we would go into separate rooms. The men, we went over into a room off the baptistry. And the women, I think they stayed right there in the church in the, in the pews. And I remember the first night I was there, my pastor and several of our deacons, older men who knew how to pray, were seated there, seated there. And when they said, all right, we share a few prayer requests, let's pray. To my amazement, these older men, 50s, 60s, and so forth, turned around and got on their knees right at their folding chair. Nothing fancy, nothing big, but they just started praying. One of the men was one of our deacons, and we used to kind of make fun of him because we knew that at every church supper, every church event that he was asked to pray, he started his prayers off in the same manner. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, and the whole youth group's lips are moving, and praise you for your great power. And we just, that just became kind of a comforting thing to hear. But I'll tell you, on those Wednesday nights, I understood why he prayed the way that he did. This was a man of prayer. Our pastor was a man of prayer. And as a young believer, I had the privilege at literally sitting at the feet of men of prayer. What an awesome opportunity. The Word of God has a lot to say about prayer. Uh, it is something that is repeated over and over in Scripture. And yet sometimes we let things in our lives get in the way. Uh, as Christians, especially long-term Christians, uh, things like physical limitations, handicaps dampen our prayer life. Um, emotional situations dampen our prayer life. Troubles dampen our prayer life. Something as simple as just pride dampens our prayer life. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Norm Geisler, uh, known as more of an apologetics guy, traveled around the country de debating different uh, university professors on the person of Christ and so forth, uh, shared with us in class one day this story. Uh, back when he was teaching at Talbot Seminary in California, he was on the elder board of his church. And Dr. Geisler kind of told us the story this way. There was a man in their church who was uh, afflicted with a disease. I'm not sure if it was MS, MD, whatever it was, but his legs had atrophied and he couldn't walk any longer. So he sat in a wheelchair. Now the neat thing about this guy is he'd been in that wheelchair for years, but he carried a little briefcase with him. And when he opened it up, it was full of little cards. And these were the various prayer requests that he had collected. People came to him specifically because they knew that this man was a prayer warrior. And they asked him to pray for their most intimate needs, their, their greatest impact in their life. 
And this man could pray. He was known throughout their church as a praying person, and they loved to give their requests to this guy. Well, when Dr. Geisler met this man, it was because he had called the elders and said, I need to come and speak with you men. I need to get some wisdom from God. Something has happened in my life. And to their amazement, when this man arrived at the elder meeting, he came walking in, and he sat at the table, and he said to these men, I heard through a friend that God heals and I wanted to know what this was about. And my friend kept after me and after me and after me. And he said to me, if you'll come with me, someplace in downtown LA, there is a healer and he will heal you. And so kind of against his will, he didn't know about it, but his friend took him and he went to the service and people were going forward, some were being healed and he thought, what do I have to lose? And so he brought his wheelchair up front. And when the man spoke to him, he said, would you like to walk again? And he said, I would. And he says, do you believe in me that I can heal you? And he says, well, I believe that Jesus Christ can heal me. And he says, no, I'm asking you, do you believe that I can heal you? And the man said, yes, I believe you can heal me. And the man put his hand on his head and prayed. And the next thing you know, this man was walking. Now, Geisler, my professor, is no fool. I mean, he's an apologist for Christ. And he is telling us that this man walked into their elder room that night, healed of his disease. But he had a problem, and this is why he wanted to see the elders. He said, my prayer ministry has been shut off. I still get together with God. I open up my briefcase. I take my cards out, and I'm reading through them, and I'm praying for people. I'm interceding for people. I'm doing all I can in prayer, and it's as if my prayers are bouncing off a barrier between me and God, and I no longer have that power of prayer that I once had. Why? Why is this happening? And the elders said, tell you what, come back to our next meeting. We're going to pray about this ourselves and see if we can get God's wisdom on this situation. So he said the man came back to their next meeting, and... When he came in, they said to him, this is our decision. It's possible that, yes, you are healed, but that you haven't been healed by God. Now, we're going to ask you, if this healing is not of God, would you be willing to renounce it? And this shook the man to the core of his being. And finally, he said, yes, my relationship with God is such that I would rather have that then be able to walk. So the elders got up, they walked around him, placed their hands on him, of which Dr. Geisler was one of them, and they just prayed saying, God, if this healing is not of you, then we pray that you would take it away and restore our brother. And Norm said, before his eyes, he watched this man's legs just wither, and he fell to the ground. And they helped him into a wheelchair, and the man just was crying, but he left. The next time Norm saw him, he asked how it was going, and he says, I can't tell you how wonderful it's been. God has been listening to my prayers. I have my intercessory ministry back, and it's as if nothing else has ever happened. You see, we let things get in the way of our prayer life because we don't think it's right 
We think that if God was really powerful, if God was really here, things would be better somehow. Um, we wouldn't have that chronic illness. We wouldn't have the financial problems. We wouldn't have children that were rebellious. And yet, some of those things are the very sanctifying process that God is choosing to use in our life to draw us closer to him. Well, let's look at how we get this prayer. The first thing I want to say to you this morning is you have to know who it is that you're praying to. Nehemiah chapter 1 is, like I said before, where I'm going to start off. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, the people of Israel are in captivity. Uh, they were taken captive by Babylon. Now Babylon has been overtaken by the Persians and so forth. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he decides that it is, uh, he's hearing horrible tales of what's happening back in Jerusalem where uh, they used to live. And so he decides to go to the king. But before he does that, he decides that he needs God on his side. He needs to pray. So let's look at this. Uh, Doug said next week he's going to be looking at the pattern of prayer, probably, probably focusing on the Lord's Prayer. In Nehemiah, uh, it's a pattern of prayer that we also want to pay attention to one of the most powerful, starting in verse 4. Nehemiah writes, As soon as I heard these words, the words about the uh, plight of the Israelites back in Jerusalem, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And this is what I really love about this section of scripture, how he prays. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Dropping down to verse 10, these people, your servants, are, are the ones that you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man. This is the first of 12 prayers that Nehemiah writes. Now, often when you hear sermons on Nehemiah, you hear about rebuilding the wall, starting the temple, uh, all the great things that happened historically. Uh, but understand that this book is girded by a series of prayers that we call inclusios, where we're begging God to hear the words of our mouth. And what I really like about this pattern is how Nehemiah starts this prayer. O oh Lord, the vocative address. O oh Lord, addressing him as the highest of all. God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Everybody I've ever studied on prayer Jonathan Edwards, uh, uh, the early church fathers, uh, John Piper, um, people like that, all start their prayers off by acknowledging who it is they're praying to. I'm praying to this great and awesome God. Now notice this, this next thing, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Two concepts here that are so important. God is a God of covenant. He's a God of promise. And of course, he, Jeremiah, excuse me, Nehemiah is referring back to the covenants that God has made with his people Israel. And even though that God seems to have been off the scene for a long time, you've got to remember, 
the people of Israel haven't seen God or evidence of him for decades. He seemingly has abandoned them. They were his chosen people. He brought them down through Abraham, through the patriarchs, through the judges, through the kings, to Rehoboam, who splits the kingdom with Jeroboam. And by the time you work your way through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the people of Israel have sinned so much by worshiping false idols, by rejecting everything that God has had to say to them, by not keeping the Palestinian covenant from the book of Deuteronomy, that God has said you need to be chastised. You need to go through a time of purification. And so therefore they're taken into captivity. God uses secular powers, first the nation of Assyria and then the nation of Babylon, to carry his chosen people off the land into a different land. But he has not forgotten them. They've waited a long time to see the hand of God. Sometimes don't you get discouraged? I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and there's no God. He's forgotten me. He doesn't know who I am. Oh Lord, I, I, I know I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a Christian. I have this great need before you. Why don't you hear my prayer? And Nehemiah says this, you are a covenant-keeping God. You and I as believers in Christ today, we live in the sphere, the shadow of the new covenant that God gave us, as is listed out in Jeremiah. But it came through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, when he was incarnated. And he lived that perfect life. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. And he died on that cross for you and for me. And if you've received that gift of salvation from him, you exist also just as much in covenant as Nehemiah does, did. And the people of Israel, you are a God that remembers covenant. It's okay when you pray to say, God, I remember who you are. You're not just the God that I manipulate. You're not just a God who just kind of comes here and there when I need you, that I can go out and do whatever I want, and then you just appear magically. You're a covenant-keeping God. And secondly, he says that you're a steadfast love God. The word in the Hebrew is hesed. Uh, when I was taking classes in Hebrew, uh, I heard more than once that the concept of hesed, steadfast love, is one of the most powerful principles, attributes, concepts of God in all of Scripture. God is God of love. That doesn't mean he looks the other way while we live any way that we want. What it means is that God loves me, God loves you so much that he's willing to let you experience things, go through problems, have things happen in your life that you would never choose for yourself so that you can be all that he wants you to be. Covenant-keeping God. Steadfast love God. Children of Israel may have thought that he forgot them, that he had delivered them away. Certainly their neighbors, watching the situation, gave that testimony. This God who brought these people out of Egypt has done nothing but let them fall, let them go away. He's destroyed his people. Little did they know that God had not forgotten them. God does not forget you. God does not forget me. God still loved them. God still loves us. And he had a plan for them. And the timing was going to be perfect. But Nehemiah starts his prayer this way. You're an awesome and great God. Now, hopefully you got on your way in this morning one of these little cards. If not, I know that I left some on that little back table. But 
these are great prompters. We need to remember who God is. When I pray, I do this every morning. I just run through as a reminder to myself, this is who I pray to. First of all, who God is. God is great. He's good. He's gracious. He's glorious. This is quite common phraseology, both in Scripture, but we've been doing this a lot in different studies. So you might be familiar with this, but it just helps us remember God is great. God is great. Greatness has that idea that there is nothing more supreme than God. You cannot go to a higher authority than God. Have you ever had someone tell you or ask you, how can you spend time in prayer? Why don't you take the bull by the horns and go out there and get it done? You're being passive. And I said, the greatest thing I could do by taking the bull by the horns is going to the one who created the bull, right? I'm going to go to him because he's the great one. He's good. I never have to worry about God being capricious or vindictive or God being unforgiving or God not being that God of great love. He is good. He is gracious. Oh, how gracious is he? How many times do we sin against him in one day? I don't know about you, but every day when I go to bed, I try to think back, what have I done today? How have I disappointed God? What have I done to offend him? And I easily can come up with many, many opportunities that I had to serve him, to praise him, to lead others in praise of him, and I failed. Reluctance, fear, shyness, uh, saying things that probably didn't make other people happy, uh, being too sarcastic, which is one of my major fallings, all these things. And I have to ask God's forgiveness. And every time, God is gracious. And there are times when God does for me, as a matter of fact, maybe I should say it this way, there's always times that God does for me things that I do not deserve. There is no merit within me that demands that God respond in a gracious way, but yet he does that anyway. And lastly, he is glorious. Oh, man, is he glorious. The idea of gloriousness of God is that we can't even begin to comprehend it. Over and over throughout the pages of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, we see this throne room of God in which these very incompetent men are trying to describe with words, both in Hebrew and Greek, and we translate it into English, and yet we still don't have a comprehension of it. But there it is. There are these multitude, this host of angels, more than the eyes can take in, standing before a throne, praising him, singing praises to him. And before him is that glassy sea, that crystal blue sea, and the, and the elders, and the angels, and the seraphim, and the cherubim, and the four living creatures who are fearsome to look at, constantly circling that throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there upon the throne sits the wisdom of the ages, unincorporable. He does not have form. He is God. And for that moment, <coughs> as Scripture puts it, he has located himself on that throne. No one can stand before him. All that come into contact with him fall before him on their faces. To look upon God is to know death, right? That's what the Scripture says. Moses, take off your sandals. You stand upon holy ground. 
even when his angels appear to us as people. We cannot stand that, that brush with holiness. Moses had to wear that veil over his face because even his near contact with this God causes him to shine. And it's so fearsome to the people that he serves, they don't want to see it. They can't see it. Moses is amazing, but God is bigger. He's glorious. Who do you pray to when you pray? Is that your God? Is he great? Is he good? Is he gracious? Is he glorious? If you flip that card over, not only do we remind it of who he is, but what he does. He is the creator. He created me. He created you. Everything in this world, he has created. And even though this creation is now marred by the fallenness of sin, it's broken, <coughs> God created us. Sometimes we hear in debate today, people will say, well, I gave birth to this baby. I, I have something to do, and I can start a life, I can end a life. But I'm telling you right now, God creates all life. My second daughter just had twins. They were preemies. Born a couple months before they should have been. The odds of them surviving were not great. But God created them. Every ounce of them. Every piece of them. And he created you. Have you taken time to go out and look at his creation? Do you, like me, get excited when you watch science shows or nature shows and you see the intricacies of nature? And you think about the universe and you think about the planets and the stars, and you think, God did all that. The universe is not eternal. The universe is not something that just goes on and on. It is God's plaything. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. God is the sustainer, secondly. He sustains this creation. By every second of your life, by every breath that you take, by every beat of your heart, it does not happen just because of natural causes. It happens because God desires for you to still be alive. That's why the New Testament can say to us, it is appointed unto men once to die. What do you live in your life for? Is it in response to the knowledge that you've been created and are being sustained? Or do you try to hide your life and say, well, I, I need these creature comforts. I need this amount of money. I need this amount of food. I need this and I need that. God says, no. I am sufficient for your needs. Creator, sustainer. He's also our provider. Oh my goodness. What God provides. Doesn't always happen the way that we would like it to happen. Doesn't happen the way that we think it will happen. But God provides <coughs> in every way. He sustains us with the incomes that we need. He sustains us with the breath that we take. He sustains us with everything that just makes life whole. He's also our protector. Now you wonder what that one you think about it. If you're doing this prayer like I'm suggesting today, that you're confessing that God is great and good and gracious and glorious, that he is your creator, sustainer, provider, you need a protector because suddenly your prayers are going to take on a power and effectiveness that maybe they hadn't before. And you're going to be on the radar of our enemy, right? The Bible that goes into great lengths to explain to us there is a spiritual world out there that wants nothing more than to get in the way of what God is doing. You need a protector. You need a protector. Uh, that can happen in practical ways, too. <coughs> the other night, my daughter Rachel, my oldest one, 
was coming down from Madison, Wisconsin. Now on Friday, Iona and I went to lunch at Wendy's to get a little cup of chili, and it was raining. When we came outside, it had all turned to ice, right? You remember that? So I'm, you know, being the dad, I'm like, Rachel, you need to leave Madison right now before it gets dark. Get down here. And so she asked her boss, and they graciously agreed. And so Rachel's on the road. And we're thinking, three-hour drive, Madison, Iowa City, not a big deal. But we knew it was icy, so we're praying. Praying for her protection, praying that God would be her protector. About Monticello, halfway between here and Dubuque, Rachel's calling and says, my defroster is quick. My ice is falling on the window. I don't know if I can even begin to see. And so we you know, are on the phones and we're saying, well, there's a Walmart in Anamosa. Uh, get there and see if they can help you out. I'm suspecting that her radiator fluid is low. Um, just see if they can top it off and so forth. Well, she, tells, she calls back and she says, Dad, I'm having to stop three, four times just to scrape my windows. Now, we also learned that her taillights don't work. She has no brake lights, no blinker lights, no backup lights. Something is going wrong with this car. And so I'm thinking, here's my daughter out on the highway, pulled over, scraping windows, and no one can see her coming from behind, right? So as a dad, I'm going into panic mode. Now, I have a great panic mode. That's when I forget that there's a God, and I just start taking everything on myself. What can I do? Do I need to jump in my car and drive up there and get this fool off the highway, bring her home, you know, all this kind of stuff? And I, uh, she says to me, Dad, I think I can make it to Anamosa. It's not a problem. So she's going to drive to Anamosa, and I'm waiting. This is going to be another 18, 20 minutes, and then whatever she found out at Walmart and so forth. And I'm thinking, I've got to call her again find out what's going on. And then I just feel like God is saying, wait a minute. Dave, didn't you ask me to take care of this situation? Amen. Yeah, exactly. And I was feeling the Spirit saying, then let me take care of the situation, Dad. So I put my phone down, and I just waited. It's not easy, is it? But pretty soon, when the time was right, Rachel called. She said, you're not going to believe this, Dad. I'm on the road for Iowa City. Turned out she'd gone to Walmart. They didn't have an auto department. Uh, she went to a little service station that she saw on her phone. It was 4.45. They closed at 5. And for whatever reason, the guy said, no, I'm not going to help you. Go on your way. But then she went across the street to another auto place. And there, this older couple was working. The lady was working the desk. The guy was in the back tipping out the cars or working on them. And they came out, and they heard Rachel's story. And they said, hey, let's take care of you. They filled up her radiator with like a gallon and a half of coolant, got that defrost working, no charge. Now, could I have done that? No. Is God her protector? Absolutely. When she got home, she's telling us this whole story. And then Ione shares with me that she had been praying for Rachel to be protected from anything that's evil. And Rachel shared with us that on the highway, this truck had come up behind her and stopped, and two men had gotten out to come help her. But for some inexplicable reason, they just stopped, returned to their truck, and kept on driving down the highway. Now, I'm thinking initially, those rotten guys, what were they thinking? But when I heard Ione say that, and Ione said to me, I prayed that she would be protected from evil, 
we're both thinking, what did those men see? I don't think they saw a woman scraping her windshield. Something kept them from approaching. I don't know, I can't tell you for sure what was in their hearts, but I'm thinking that was protection. Right? That was protection. We have a great God. He's our creator, sustainer, provider, protector. Second thing we need to know today is not only who we're praying to, but who are we that are doing the praying. If you'll turn with your Bibles to Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel's the last of the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah. We get all the way up to Daniel, chapter 9. We have another example of prayer. When I say, you know, we're all familiar with the verse from James, chapter 5, where we get a picture of a sick person needing healing who calls upon the elders of the church to gather and come and pray over them. And it says there in that verse that the prayers of a righteous man affects much. In other words, you're much better off if you're sick, if you're confessing your sins and asking for healing from a righteous man. Now, sometimes we trip over that. We don't like those terms. Well, even though I sin, God will still hear my prayers, and that is true. But a person that is pursuing God, not a perfect person, but a person who is pursuing God, who keeps short accounts with God, is going to hear and see God in a special way. You want them praying for you. That's the story we see back in the book of Daniel. And if you remember Daniel's story, it's not unlike Nehemiah's. Daniel had been one of those uh, young men who was full of the Spirit, who was able to come before God after being chosen to be a, a worker in the uh, Babylonian uh, government. Uh, at this point, Babylon had been taken over by Persia, and this is what he says in Daniel chapter 9. He's done some reading. I love this. He says, I was reading the word of the Lord of Jeremiah the prophet. And we know exactly where he was reading back in Jeremiah chapter 25 where it says that 70 years will pass before God brings his people out of exile back into the land. Daniel does some quick math and he says, wait a minute, it's been 70 years. This is amazing. And so he decides to devote himself to prayer. Now listen to this prayer. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, again, the vocative address, the great and awesome God. Who does this sound like? Just like Nehemiah, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, and he goes through a whole system of forgiveness. The cool part about this is Daniel is praying and praying and praying. If you drop down to verse uh, 29, excuse me, uh, 20, no, that's 29. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, this man Gabriel, who's an angel, who I sent in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And this angel is going to tell Daniel something. Now, I don't know about you, but when I spend time in prayer and God is not answering, I lose, I lose sight sometimes of my prayer, but I also begin to suspect that there's something wrong with me. We need to understand who we are. 
And Gabriel comes to him and says this, O Daniel, I've now come to you to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning, when you first started praying, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. And what's he going to tell him? That you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider this word. If you keep following it down, the angel explains to him all these things. You get over to chapter 10, and Daniel is just going to town with his prayers. He uses that, O oh Lord, style of prayer over and over again in this prayer. And then in verse 10 of chapter 10, it says, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh Daniel, man greatly loved. Second time. God says, you are greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you. And he goes on and he speaks to him, telling him to be of great courage and so forth. But then he explains why his prayers were held up. If you look down to verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now he doesn't mean the king of Persia. He means the spiritual uh, being who had headship over Persia. More than likely a demonic presence. But he says, but Michael... Another archangel, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for this vision is for days yet to come. Our prayers are really illuminating as to what is happening in a realm in which we cannot see. When we pray, when we are the people of prayer, when we have our hearts set before God, God is going to work on our behalf. But understand this, there is spiritual opposition to what we may be praying. Because the best prayers are the ones praying for what God has already set in motion. Daniel is not praying, oh, these 70 years are up, God. I'm reminding you that, okay? No, he's just agreeing with God. The most faithful and strongest prayers out there are the prayers in which we already understand the will of God, and we're just praying for them to be done. And again, dropping to verse 18 in chapter 10, the same angel says, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he says, Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And then so forth. We have to be a people of prayer, a people of faith. We cannot give up on our prayers. There is real power in prayer. It changes everything about our lives. It determines when we get up, when we go to bed, what we do with our day, constantly in prayer. In the old days, men used to say, well, pray three to four hours a day. Well, that's because they live in a different generation. I heard Billy Graham speak at Urbana 79 one time, and he was asked that question, how often do you pray? How long do you pray? And he said, really, I just have a set 15, 20 minutes in the morning that I pray, but then I pray throughout the day. That's doable for us, isn't it? 15, 20 minutes in the morning and pray throughout the day. Who are you praying to? That great God, that good God, that gracious God, that glorious God, that creator, sustainer, provider, protector? And who are you that are praying? Are you a faithful people? Are you sacrificing everything in your life to walk with God? Last thing I want to say to you this morning is listen to him. Listen to the Lord when you pray. Make enough time in there so that you're not just hitting God with request, 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 request. But you're leaving time for you to hear from him 
what he wants of you, where he wants you to go, who he wants you to speak to, how he wants you to say certain things. When you can do that, then you can come up from your knees, from your posture of prayer, and know with confidence that God has heard you and that you are going to take care of what he has asked you to take care of this day. Learn that power of prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. We love you. You are great and awesome. You are a covenant keeper. And you are a God of steadfast love, of said, Lord, we know that you love us. You care for us. May we be a people, Father, that fit perfectly with your plans. May we do our best to keep a short account with you. May we not let sin dwell in our hearts. May we not lose faith when we don't see an immediate answer to prayer. Father God, we trust you with our lives, with the lives of those that are our loved ones, and with the purpose of your church. And we ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.